0: The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 3, and we'll be in verse 1. We are continuing this week in our series. It's called Our Story Begins. And uh, we've been careful at the beginning of each of these to make sure and say that the Bible is God's story. The Bible is about God primarily. However, in his sovereign grace, he has included us in his story. And so uh, because he sent Jesus to die for us, we are able to be called his sons and daughters uh, by grace through faith in Christ. And so uh, we have been swept into this greatest of all narratives, which is uh, the story of God creating the earth. Uh, And then humanity, which we're going to see in in a very focused way today, humanity messing up uh, that perfect creation to some degree, and then God uh, going into gear and and having this plan of redemption that unfolds throughout the rest of the Bible, culminating in a crescendo that is Christ coming to live a perfect life, die in our place for our sins, and rise from the grave. So the beauty of thinking this way is that we see what we're going to look at in Genesis today is not just a story of how our first parents... Uh, lost a battle with temptation, but it's it's our story. This is our origin story. This is how we got where we are today. And so, this seeing this as our story binds us to God and His story, and it binds us to one another because your story is my story and vice versa. If we believe God is the Father of us all, and so we do believe that here by faith, and we're thankful for it. Uh, so this week we are studying the first half of Genesis three, um, and in Second Corinthians chapter two we are told that we should not be ignorant of the devil's schemes. And so as we read these verses, uh, we are going to get a window into our enemy's playbook. We're going to see how through temptation and deception, Satan tries to steal glory from God by getting God's people ensnared in sin. We're going to see the severity of sin, uh, how we often try to deal with it, and how God is exceedingly gracious towards us When we fail to obey him. So we're going to read Genesis 3, verses 1 through 13, and we'll see all that God has for us tonight. Here we go. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Praise God for his word. Uh, Let's take a moment to define what we just read. I think it's important for us to do that. What we just read is the account of the most tragic event in all of history. This is not a mythical story or some human attempt To make sense of our existence. This is the point where all that had been created and called very good by our perfect God was made not good. This is the point where human beings created for the uninhibited relationship with God and to rule over the earth as his appointed representatives turned our back on him. We chose to obey a different master instead. This is where sin and death and pain and suffering enter into the world God made. This is where darkness begins to fill the earth and human hearts. This is the very worst atrocity to ever occur. And it has led to every other atrocity since then. The truth is, friends, familiarity breeds indifference. And this is a familiar story. We need to take a moment and ask God to let the gravity of this situation affect us that we may really feel the weight of it. Let's stop and pray for just a moment and ask God to do that because it's hard for us with real familiar stories to to let it touch us like it should. So let's pray a moment. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, we don't want to be indifferent about the truth that you have for us in your word today. We don't want to miss Uh, the depth and weight of these scriptures, and and we want to understand what it is you have for us. So God, let this not be a common thing to us. Your word is precious to us, and we desire to understand all that you have for us today, to be changed and transformed by the power of your eternal word. Thank you for meeting us and helping us with this desire. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, So here's my question. In in trying to help us understand what I'm talking about with, with familiarity being an issue, have you ever watched a movie that you've watched before, and you know when someone's about to be in danger from whatever person or thing is trying to hurt them? Right, say it's suspense or whatever the genre is. You you know you know the thing's coming, right? Um, I I started watching Lord of the Rings again recently because a I'm a nerd, and b I really like looking for all the scriptural and, like, gospel allusions that Tolkien buried into the story. And so if, if you've never, like, read the books or watched the movies, uh, I would just submit those to you. It's a really good exercise to, to watch those and really be thinking through a gospel lens and, and look for the imagery there. Um, I have fun doing that. Uh, obviously, by your reaction, you don't. So that's okay. Um, but in The Fellowship of the Ring, which is the first of uh, the three films... Gandalf tells Frodo and Sam, okay, Gandalf's a wizard. Man, this is gonna sound nerdier the farther I go. Frodo and Sam are hobbits. They're like little people with fuzzy feet. So he tells those two uh, to meet him at the Prancing Pony in the town of Bree. And he tells them, as they're going there, to stay off the road, okay, because there's ring wraiths coming after them, trying to steal the ring of power that they have, all right? So they're on their way. They run into Mary and Pippin, two other hobbits. and they were just stealing vegetables out of a farmer's garden. So this farmer's chasing them, and then so Frodo and Sam get in the mix. They're all running from the farmer, and uh, so they, they trip, and they fall over this embankment. They roll down the embankment, and when they get to the end of it, what they've landed on, you guessed it, a road, exactly what Gandalf told them to stay off of. And so here, here's what I'm talking about. I, I've seen this movie a couple times, so I know that the dark riders from Mordor are right around the corner... And uh, these four hobbits are, they're super close to getting murdered, okay? That's, this is right, right on the edge of super big danger. And even though I know they're going to quickly hide under some tree roots, it's gonna be a super close call, but they are gonna get away. I still catch myself having a visceral response as they hit that road. And I'm thinking to myself, you fools, hurry up. You don't have time to be sitting here looking at each other, counting your vegetables. Like, get up and move, man. The ringwraiths are coming, right? Like, so I'm, I'm feeling that, and even though I know how it's going to go, there's still, still a sense of uh, suspense there. So literally, I, I'm feeling in that moment the, the, the Middle Earth shattering impact of them getting caught and Sauron getting the ring of power, okay? So um, that, that went worse than I thought it was going to. I know, I know some of you from this example, you know exactly what I mean. Even though you've watched a movie, maybe it's not Lord of the Rings, but you've watched something enough times, but, and you know what's coming, but yet there's still this reaction. You still feel the weight of the moment. You still feel what's going on in the story. Uh, I know some of you know what I mean from this example, and, and I know that some of you are thinking, yeah, you definitely are a nerd. And that's okay. Um, I'm all right with that. So my whole point is, though, that uh, just because many of us know this account of Genesis 3 by heart, doesn't mean we shouldn't feel the weight of it every time we read it or even think about it. My example that I gave you is lame because it's just a fictional story with no real-world consequences, but the effects of Genesis 3 are felt every day by every person who has ever lived or ever will live. And so this matters deeply. We need to let ourselves connect at every level with what the text is Showing us today, which I told you earlier, and this is not preacher hyperbole, this is the greatest atrocity you will ever lay eyes on. And so we need to feel that and let that motivate us as we study to see how uh, w- what we can learn from and also understand where we're coming from. So praise God for those things. Uh, my, my prayer is that, that, that the weight of this would compel us to study it carefully so we understand how our enemy works, how our first parents were deceived. And how we can avoid repeating the same tragic mistakes. Amen. So I hope you're excited about that too. I hope you're willing to work with me today in the verses. Amen. So let's go to verse 1. We're going to work through this uh, kind of verse by verse. We'll take some of it in chunks. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed his God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Now, first of all, we need to stop and not make an assumption that many of us make because we're familiar with the story. This text doesn't actually spell out that this serpent was indeed Satan or the devil. Uh, It doesn't tell us that right here in this text. And I think some of us, we just, you know, somebody told us that and we're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But let's just take a moment. Why do we believe that? Are Christians making that up because it fits our narrative or does, does the Bible say that elsewhere? So Ezekiel 28 tells us that Satan was in Eden. You can go look at that later. Uh, In Revelation 12, 9 and 20, verse 2, both refer to Satan as the serpent of old. That's just a few references that point back to uh, this being, Satan coming in the form of a serpent to tempt Eve, okay? Uh, We also know that demons can temporarily temporarily inhabit animals from other scriptures, right? If you remember the time when Jesus sent a bunch of demons into a herd of pigs, they rushed down the hill into the lake. Uh, We went... Uh, we, we're not here given the exact mechanics of how Satan appeared in the form of a serpent, serpent. okay? But how he looked or spoke, how he did those things, the mechanics of it, is not nearly as important as, important as what he spoke and us understanding that, the mechanics of that, because that's what really matters. Uh, so here in verse 1, we see the first tactic that Satan employs against Eve, and that's he tries to prompt in her ingratitude. And I don't know if you see that right off the bat, but here's, here's what he says. Did you can almost hear the tone? A poor woman. Did God tell you you can't eat from any of the trees? You see what he says there? Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? See, God had said, what, what God had said, if you go back and look at it, is you can eat from all the trees except one. But what does Satan come and focus on? Did God tell you that there's a tree here you can't eat from? Oh, that's terrible. Look at him restricting you. See, what Satan does is he flips what God said to focus on one prohibition instead of the incredibly generous provision of all the rest of the trees. He's cultivating in Eve, right off the bat, this sense of ingratitude. Okay? Uh, It's it's much like people today who may feel that God is unfair and not allowing them to just sleep with whoever they want, whenever they want, right? Because that person, Satan has tricked them into forgetting that God gave us the beautiful gift of sexual intimacy to express love within covenant marriage and to bring forth children into the world. But what Satan wants to do is cultivate a lack of gratitude towards God because that's one of the ways Satan leads people into sin. He doesn't want you to think about the incredible provision God has given and how generous he's been. He wants you to focus on the prohibition, which, by the way, every prohibition God lays down is for your good, because if he says don't do something, it's because if you do that thing, it will harm you. And every single time he says, I want you to do this, if you don't do that, it will lead to a lack of peace or joy or some good thing. God's never asking you to do something or not do something for any motivation other than for your good. He's made that clear in, by what He's said. You might say, well, talk is cheap. Not when God says it, but that's okay. He's also followed it through with his actions, if you really think about it. Let's follow the biblical narrative. Let's see how many times he's proven himself faithful. Let's see how many times he's been exceptionally gracious when what we deserved was something far different. So uh, cultivating a lack of gratitude is one of Satan's baseline tactics in trying to lead people into temptation and into sin. And so as I'm going through these things, what we want to understand is why, why does why does it say in 2 Corinthians for us to not be uh, ignorant of the devil's schemes? Because the devil is scheming. And because the, the sad truth is many times uh, there, there are spiritual forces of darkness in the world. There are demons and all kinds of stuff happen. But they're not omnipresent. They're not always around. And... Oftentimes we get, we get hyper-spiritual in thinking that every time somebody's tempted to sin, well, a demon must be right there whispering in their ear. Here's the sad truth. Demons are very good. Satan himself is very good at deceiving people, and, and to the degree that if they can get you thinking a certain way, if they can train you habitually to think a certain way, say, in, you know, with ingratitude or having an ungrateful heart in given situations, just that, that, if they can get you doing that, they can go and mess with somebody else, and you'll, you'll just do their work for them. You understand that. Sometimes it's your very own flesh that tempts you. Sometimes it's just bad habits and, and thinking that is contrary to God's word, which is why the word of God says we've got to take every thought captive that is contrary to his word. This is a battle in the mind, uh, and this is a, a battle of understanding the way the enemy works. And um, as we're going to see further down, if we don't have the truth written upon the tablet of our heart, uh, we're coming to the fight with no weapons. That's why we get... Uh, Our tushies kicked quite often. Let me give you some truth to combat uh, this this common tactic of the enemy we see here starting out in the uh, tempting of Eve, uh, and that's cultivating a lack of gratitude in your heart. Let me just say this as plainly as I can. Your enemy, Satan, wants you ungrateful. You understand that? If he can get you ungrateful, he can get you thinking the wrong kind of thoughts in, in multiple situations, Uh, And he can get you to approach all kinds of things in an ungodly way, and he can lead you into sin, which is what he wants, because that takes glory from God, and uh, ultimately it brings glory to him, which is what he's about, unfortunately, because he's a fool blinded by pride. But the Bible gives us always a way of escape. So there's, let me give you some truth to battle ingratitude. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, we have a, a way of escape from the trap of ingratitude. It says this, "'Be thankful in all circumstances.'" For this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. I don't know God's will for my life. I'm so frustrated. I don't know what to do next. Let me just give you something to do right now, friend. Here's some homework. Go home and pray till you're grateful about where you're at right now. Until you're content in your heart and you got peace about where you're at right now. Till you can come to the place where you trust that God is moving in all kinds of ways that you are not aware of. Until you're humble enough to understand that your eyes and your ears, all the five senses God gave you, are not strong enough to perceive and sense all that God may be doing. So humble yourself. Find contentment and find gratitude because that's going to help you push back against this sinister deception of the enemy called ingratitude. It was his first hit against Eve, and he's prepping her as he keeps going. So we're going to see some more of his tactics here. But God has called us to be thankful in all circumstances. So if we know that's the will of God for us, we're going into every situation asking the Holy Spirit to help us, empower us. Because can we be honest for a minute? I'm going to be honest and say, I'm not naturally inclined towards gratitude and thankfulness in every single situation. Am I alone in that? Or is anybody else in here ever tempted maybe sometimes to be ungrateful? Anybody? Anybody? Okay, good. All of you, either you're asleep or you're lying, because ingratitude is a perennial issue of the human heart, and it's something that we all suffer from. And so we need God's help. We need the help of the Holy Spirit. This is why we can't just go into this life half-cocked on our own, relying on our own strength. We need Jesus' help to be thankful in any circumstance, much less every circumstance, which is what we're called to. But At least if we know that. If we know the word of God sets this standard and this bar of, I should be thankful in every circumstance. Well, what if it's a bad circumstance? Be thankful in every circumstance. What if it's really difficult? Really difficult. Be thankful in every circumstance. If I know that that's what the word of God is calling me to, if I know that's what Christ Jesus expects of me, then I can check myself. Then I can understand as soon as I go down that trail of ingratitude, I've wandered into a place of danger, and I need to do battle with that. I need to take that thought captive and cast it down and, and begin to rehearse all of the reasons I am grateful, all of the reasons God is worthy of praise and honor, even when the situation at the moment is not what I would prefer. I'm assuming people other than me have been in situations they didn't prefer as well. Amen. Okay. I want to give a quick definition here in case we're not all on the same page. Sin, talking a lot about sin, temptation to sin, uh, Satan's tactics to get us into sin, Let's just make sure we all understand what that is. That's kind of a Bible word. We don't use a whole lot outside of sometimes uh, Christians talking. So sin basically is disobedience to God. Okay? It is either willfully or through being deceived, doing something God has forbidden or not doing something God has commanded. Uh, Sin also pays a wage, according to Romans 6.23. Some of you probably didn't know that you get paid to sin. Every single time you get paid Um, the wage for sin, according to Romans 6.23, is death. And sin always pays what it owes. And that's part of what we're seeing here in in the lies of of Satan to our first parents, what he's doing. And part of why we're looking at this is not just so that we can uh, have an accurate historical picture of how the world fell into brokenness and sin, or exactly what happened in this time. We need to understand that the way Satan went at our first parents is the way he's coming at us. Same way, we'll talk about in a minute, he went at Jesus. His bag of tricks is not that deep, but it is unfortunately effective, and we oftentimes fall prey to it. So we need to understand not just how this happened uh, and why this happened, but we need to see that We go through the same temptations and we go through the same battles uh, that our first parents did. And it's it's easy for us to kind of say, oh man, how dumb could you be? There's a talking snake. Why didn't you just run? Uh, But we entertain sinful, foolish thoughts much longer and much more often than we would probably like to admit or even that we're aware of. So uh, sin is disobeying God, either in doing what he said don't do or not doing what he said to do. Okay? Okay. So now we got that. All right, so let's go to verse 2 and 3. It says, The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. In looking at the way our first parents were tempted by Satan here, what we're looking for is defenses. We want to understand the schemes of the devil, but we also want to not overly focus on that. We need to understand that, but we also want to know, okay, what can we bring to bear uh, in, in, in defeating those things? And what we see here in verses two and three is the absolute imperative nature of God's people knowing his word. And I know that it's like just standard, basic vanilla preacher talk to say to you, hey, the word of God's important. Hey, you should really care about the word of God. Hey, you should be in the word of God. Hey, you should read that thing. You should, you know, in the morning, at night to your kids, think about it, contemplate it. Eat it like honey on your lips, right? All the, you know, that's that's just what we say, but please don't tone me out because you're gonna see right here the, the effect of even subtle changes and subtle misunderstandings in God's word. We don't know if Adam failed to relay the message to Eve, or if Eve failed to remember it. We don't know how that went, but what we see here when she says, But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. Is, is, that, is anybody catching something there that's an issue? There is an issue. It's super subtle. And that's why just a kind of vague or loose association with God's word is not enough. We need to know what God has said. Because if you go back uh, to the last chapter of Genesis and you figure out what it is God did say, he said, if you eat of it, you will surely die. He didn't say anything about touching it. Now, some might say, oh, well, that's a technicality, and, and surely it's good advice to not go touch the fruit you're not supposed to eat, right? Because that's how many of you live your life, and I know I'm about to offend some people, and that's kind of my job. So, you know, it's like, oh, I, re- I don't want to sin, I want to serve God, but the sin, it just it looks so nice, right? And you're over here, you're touching the fruit you're not supposed to eat, and that's, that's always a recipe for disaster. You shouldn't do that. But what's really important here uh, is that Eve misquotes God. And the problem with that is, is when you add things to what God has said, it can be just as damaging as disregarding what God has said altogether. Because what happens, the, the, how that grows and what that becomes, is what you see fulfilled in the Pharisees, right? Because when Jesus came and walked the earth, there was one group of people that he yelled at. There was, there was harlots, there was adulteresses, there was people all over the place, sinning all different kinds of ways. God called them to repent, Jesus called them to repentance, Uh, But he he did that in a gentle way and and restored them. The Pharisees, he said stuff like, you guys are a brood of vipers. You are uh, whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. How are you going to escape hell? He did not pull any punches. And what what ticked Jesus off about the Pharisees? Well, it was a lot of things. Uh, But one of the things they did is he he told them, you lay heavy burdens on people that you're not willing to lift yourself. And what those heavy burdens were was man-made commandments. It was places where the Pharisees had decided they were going to lift their ideas up to the level of what God had said in his word, and they were going to make people do that. They were putting tradition at the same level as God's commands. And here we see this... uh, 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 We see Eve unintentionally... Not to the point that the Pharisees had gone, but she, she adds to what God said, and that's always dangerous. There are some rabbis, this is, of course, not said in the text, but it, it helps to illustrate the point. There are some rabbis that have said that if Satan, as the serpent, was, was touching the tree himself, and then he goes, well, surely you're not going to die. Some rabbis even said he may have grabbed her hand and touched, made her touch the tree real quick. See? See, Look what God said was going to happen isn't going to happen. And the text doesn't say that, but the point is made that when she took it farther than what God said, there's this danger of, and when, when we do that with people, either intentionally or unintentionally, we take things farther and say more than God said, uh, it, it ends up making God look bad. and ends up making things God said that are true seem to be not true. I'll give you an example, an example of legalism. In, in many... Uh, in many faith traditions, and, and even, I would say, underneath the umbrella of Christianity, there has been much made of the way people dress, right? From the person that's ministering, whether they, they need to be in a robe or in a certain thing or whatever, all the way to people that come in the door. There are, there are certain said and unsaid expectations, a, a tradition that has been come up that... And, and there's all kinds of justifications I've heard throughout the years, Right? if you were going to meet the president of the United States, you'd wear your best clothes and a suit and attire and whatever and all that. And it's like, yeah, listen, I get it. And I think we should have reverence for God, but I think God is much more concerned with the condition of our heart as we gather with God's people than he is the condition of our clothes, okay? So uh, that's just one point where legalism creeps in and and it becomes this expectation upon God's people that uh, everyone needs to dress this certain way. And that You might think, oh, well, that's not a big deal anymore. Listen to me right now. I'm on the streets every week, and I can't tell you how many times I've invited people to come gather with us here, and their response is, I don't have anything to wear. And then I have to try to undo years of legalism that has taught people, oh, well, what Christians do is dress up in their nicest clothes so that everyone's impressed, and then they come together, and I don't have any nice clothes to wear. As a matter of fact, I'm real dirty because I'm homeless, so I won't be welcome there. You see the problem with adding to what God said? God never said you need to wear a suit here or a dress or any other thing. You do need to dress modestly. Just cover yourself up. Other than that, come on. We're going to sing and worship, study God's word together, take communion. It's going to be great. Get your, if you're going to spend time prepping, man, get your heart ready. That's what we're concerned about. Come humble, ready to receive, ready to bow before the master. That's why we're here. Uh, verses 4 through 7, let's look at those together. says this the serpent said to the woman you surely will not die for god knows that in that day you eat from it your eyes will be opened and you will be like god knowing good and evil when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise she took from its fruit and ate she gave also to her husband with her and he ate then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings Here, we see Satan deceives our first parents with the insolent poison of pride. The question is, how could they avoid this? Augustine and others have said that pride is the mother of every other sin. And when you look at it, ultimately, Satan's fall, from what we can... piece, The Bible doesn't give us a a ton of things about him, but what we can can understand is that he was a high-ranking angel, uh, probably had something to do with music and was real beautiful, and got this idea in his heart at some point... Uh, that he deserved worship too. And that is the, that is the, the very genesis and beginning of uh, sin and the fall happening through Satan. He was cast to earth and then he comes and now he's trying to peddle this pride. And how do I see that? Well, how does he entice Eve? He says, you're not going to die. You're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. And that, dear friend, is our problem. All of us, every single time we choose to disobey God, every single time we sin, and this is part of what, the message of grace is incredibly important, and we are more excited about it, we are as excited about it as anybody. However, what we need to be careful to do is not make sure that we preach grace in such a way that we teach people not to hate their sin. God hates sin, because sin leads to death and destruction for people that he loves, it breaks his heart, and it always leads to pain and suffering. God hates sin. We need to hate sin, and part of how we hate sin is understanding better what it really looks like, because when it gets downplayed, and a lot of times that's we're trying to help people just believe God will love them, because a lot of folks don't believe that, because they're very aware of how far they are from perfection, and so we need to do that. We need to show them that Stacked up against grace, your sin is powerless, that God will win, and God's love will overcome. However, we, we do need to still teach people that your sin is disgusting, and that it, it matters deeply, and you need to hate it more and more as you grow closer to God. And how does that happen? Well, when we look at what sin really is, when we see how Eve was tempted, part of what caught her attention was not just that this whatever this fruit was was appealing to the eye or looked good for food... It was desirable to make one wise. What it was going to do was make her like God, able to know good and evil, and to some degree even determine good and evil. This desire for autonomy, this desire to rule ourselves, this desire to not be subject to the God that made us, but to be our own God, this is the perennial problem that lurks in the corners of each one of our hearts. This is what we need to know is something we struggle with. And when we see sin for what it is, every single time we decide, either we're tempted into it and, and, and we kind of trip. You know, The Bible does sometimes use language that we're ensnared in sin. Sometimes it, it does sneak up on you, but it also says there's always a way of escape, which means at some point we're making a choice, right? When, when we sin, what we are functionally saying is, God, I don't want you to be God. I want to be God. I know good and evil you don't know better than I do for me these are these are the declarations we make with our actions and i don't think I think most of us who have tasted the sweetness of the grace of God and understood how much mercy and beauty God has lavished upon us we would not speak to the Lord of glory that way uh, whether he was right in front of us or not. And in no way do I want to speak to God in such a way that I I think I deserve better than he does to be on the throne above all thrones. That I should get to determine what is good and evil for my life or anybody else's life. That I get to to be in his position. But every time we choose to disobey him, we are functionally declaring a, a disgusting independence from the God that made us. We need to hate that. We need to hate that that happens, and when we realize it's happened, we need to respond correctly, not just acting like it's no big deal, and we're going to get into that as we keep going here. There's, a way our first, there's several ways our first parents respond that uh, is not helpful, but God has given us a way uh, to come to him even in the midst of our failings, which I'm very thankful for. So she's tempted primarily by this, this poison of pride. It really piques her interest that she's going to know good and evil, be able to determine good and evil, be like God. How could they have avoided this? Well, first of all, so how do we avoid getting in the same trap she did? First of all, humbly acknowledging that we are not God, and we should rejoice in that fact continually. Humbly acknowledging that you are not God, and we should rejoice in that fact continually. How do we do that in a real way? Well, we have to to fix our estimation of ourselves, because there's a far spectrum. I understand I'm speaking to a whole bunch of different people here. There are people right now that The way Satan has attacked you is he's beat you down so far in your image of yourself that you see no remnant left of the image of God. You see no worth, no value whatsoever. And so this is not the way Satan's tempted you that I'm talking about right now. What he's done is taken you the opposite way. There's still pride in that because you're you're focused on yourself, how bad you are instead of how good God is. So it's still pride. It's just a different kind. But some of you he's beaten down real far, but some of you on the other side... The estimation of yourself, there's a, there's a verse that says we should not think more highly of ourselves than we ought, and there's a reason that verse is in there, because for many of us, that is a great temptation. We know we're pretty smart. We think we got things handled. We know the Bible says that uh, Jesus is divine. We're the branches, and apart from him, we can do nothing. But We don't really believe that. What we believe is, I can handle 90% of this deal, and then if it gets real bad, I'll, I'll ask God for help, and what God is trying to teach us from Genesis to Revelation is son, daughter, you can't take a breath without me or you're going to mess it up. You need me and I want to be here for you. And so you, you can be on either end of that spectrum and pride can still be the issue, but we need to humbly acknowledge we are not God and we need to rejoice in that fact continually. My friends, when you, when you say to God in prayer or praise, you are God and I am not, what, what is the real reaction of your heart in that? Are you aware that it is a good thing that you are not God and that he is? Are you really actually thankful? Is this one of the things that when you're having a really hard time and you're in a situation that is not in and of itself uh, making it easy for you to be grateful, is the fact that God is God and you are not one of the things you can go to as a source of something to be thankful for? God's godness, his sovereignty, the might of his hand, the promises of his word that have held true throughout all generations Are you able to go to these things and be actually thankful, rejoice that he is the supreme and that you are not? If that's something you think about every once in a while, hopefully every day, like all the time, it's going to help you. It's going to help you stay humble. It's going to help you to not in any way desire or covet God's right to determine what happens with you and with all of us. To understand that I don't see everything he sees. There's no way for me to know all that he knows. And it allows me to trust and to rest in what he has shown us about himself. That he is good, and that he is faithful, that he is perfect, that he will not abandon us. And that when he says something, he follows through. Amen. How could we avoid being deceived with pride? We humbly acknowledge we're not God. We rejoice in that fact continually. The second way is by not entertaining sin and temptation, not playing with it, but opposing it by the power of the spirit and the word of God. James 4, 7 says this, if you submit to God, see most people have this on their fridge, but they forget the first few words. Everyone knows if you resist the devil, he'll flee from you, but there's a really key important first part there. It's submit, submit. Let me hear you. I just want to know that you can say this word. Say submit. Let me hear you. Mmm, that's a good word. Doesn't that taste good? We don't like that word, okay? Because we're American, first of all. We didn't submit to the Brits, which y'all were watching the wedding. Um, but that's, that's kind of in us to some degree, our DNA. We don't like submission. Same, same deal as before, the pride of auto- desire for autonomy. I want to decide, right? But if we submit to God and we are submitted to him, then we have this promise in James 4, 7, that if we will just but resist the devil, he will flee from us. And unfortunately, through pop culture and different movies, depictions, and things like that, Satan is sometimes given much more credit and power than he has. Uh, we see, you know, if he, if he could have come in here and just m- jumped into Eve, God's child, and made her do the thing, why wouldn't he have done that, right? He, what he had to do is come and sneak and lie and deceive and trick. And that's what he's still doing today. But if we submit to God and we resist the devil, so what does that mean? If we resist the devil, he will flee from us if we're submitted to God. What does that mean? That means when we lose the battle of temptation, that means when we lose the battle of sin, that means when we disobey God uh, willfully, that means we didn't submit to God, first of all, and that means we didn't even resist the devil because if we would have put up a fight in the name of Christ and by the power of his spirit, we would have won. I'm going to let that sit on you for a second. You understand what I'm saying? That means... We, we need to get in the game here. We need to stop entertaining sin. And, and so what am I saying functionally out of this? When, when the serpent started saying stuff like, did God say, and, and, and maybe you know, maybe, I'm, maybe I'll talk to the talking snake that long, May, maybe, did God say this? He's asking a question like, okay, bro, i answer your question. But as soon as what came out of that slimy serpent's mouth was, no, let me, let me just say the exact opposite of what God said to you, and that's what's going to happen. Let me tell you, man, I'd have found a rock or something, bro. Serpent would have been smashed. No, we're not having any further conversation because you just straight went opposite of what God the Father told me. We are done. We need to have have that kind of tenacity. We need to not play with sin and temptation because sometimes we want to, maybe we just, I just want to hear how this goes. I just want to hear what he has to say. And Sometimes it's, it's in our own minds. Sometimes it is forces of darkness in the mix. It doesn't really matter. We, we can't play with it. We don't entertain sin and temptation. We oppose it. We take captive every thought that is contrary to the word of God, which is true and for our good. Amen. Quit playing with sin. We see this. You, you might be saying, how, how does that functionally work? Well, Again, it comes back to having the Word of God written in our hearts. It's it's very important for us to know God's Word. This is part of how we do battle. When the armor of God is given to us in Ephesians 6, we're we're told the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. That is the offensive weapon that we have. We see this play out. There's a very interesting contrast, dear friends, in Satan's temptation of Adam and Eve and Satan's temptation of Jesus. Jesus came to the earth, and he went through this same scenario as our first parents did. Did he not? Right? He fasts for 40 days. He's out in the wilderness. Who shows up? The old serpent, here he is, and what's he do? First off, it's very interesting. Uh, what, what, did it, what did it say Eve was realizing about the fruit? That it was, it was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes, right? And that it was desirable to make one wise. And what I'm trying to show you is Satan, Satan isn't quite as crafty or as, as deep with the roster of tricks as sometimes we think he is. Because Okay, so it's good for food in scenario one. What's the first thing he tempts Jesus with? Hungry Jesus that just got done fasting. You seeing the connection? I'm telling you guys, the whole Bible, it's all tied together. First thing Satan shows up and says, hey, you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. What's Jesus' response? What does Jesus do? How does Jesus do battle with the evil one? Pulls the scripture out, man. Right at him. God's word says that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Okay, that one didn't work. So where does Satan go from there? He uh, Says, oh, you're the son of God, and his angels will make sure you don't hit your foot upon a stone, man. Jump off this thing. God will rescue you. Jesus says, no. Says, don't tempt the Lord your God. And then we see he's getting nervous. He's about to lose. He goes, he goes to the same thing, goes to the same deal. What, what, was, what was the last thing about the fruit that got Eve interested? It was desirable to make one wise. That, that is tied directly to that promise Satan made that, oh, man, no, you're not going to die. You're going to know what good and evil is. You're going to be like God. What's the last thing Satan tries to get Jesus with? Takes him up to a high place, right? This is Simba in the Lion King moment, right? Satan takes him up there, says, look around. Everything you see, I'll make it yours. Friends, here's what I want you to see. Did Jesus say, well, well, how many square miles is this? Or, Or how many people would be under my rule? Did he entertain it? Did he play with it? Did he give it any entertainment at all in his mind? Did he think about it much? Did he, did he give a conversation to Satan? No, all he came at, with, at him with was the word of God and beat him back. He said, no, 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 no. You, you go ahead and go because the word of God says that I should worship him alone. And so I will not be bowing your feet no matter what you promise me. The word of God is how Jesus pushed back the tempter. I think it's also helpful for us to remember, you know, Hebrews says that Jesus is not a high priest that can't relate to us. He's been through temptation like we have. The fact that he went through what Adam and Eve went through, that they didn't make it, but he did. It's part of why he's able to stand in and be the sacrifice for us. That's, you need to understand Jesus, though God in the flesh, restricted his deity to the degree that that temptation was real. There was real temptation there, and yet by the power of God's Spirit, He made it through, and he he drew for us a blueprint of how we should deal with the imaginations of our own mind that are contrary to God's word, with the forces of darkness tempting us, how all of that works. The word of God brings truth and a way of escape to every temptation, to every single one. I know for some of you, it's like, hey, I've been in temptations, and I did not see a door number two. I understand that, but just because your eyes or your ears or your 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 realm of understanding didn't perceive it doesn't mean it wasn't there. And, and sometimes we're not looking for it if we're, if we're totally honest. Can we be honest with each other? Sometimes we weren't looking for the way of escape, which is why it wasn't obvious. But God has promised that he will, every single time, make a way of escape. We never are uh, just destined and doomed to fall into sin and, and to end up eating the wages of sin, which is death and destruction. We're learning some stuff here. I hope you are. I am. Praise God. We're in 8 through 13, okay? They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you Gave to be with me, she gave me the tr- of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Once we realize that we've sinned, we are often tempted to sin again in the way that we react towards the fact that we've just sinned. Most often, probably the most common ways we do this is through hiding, blaming, and justifying. What does that look like? Well, we see that here. First of all, our, our Adam and Eve, they, they they hear God coming. What's their first move? They're boogying, right? They're going to go hide deep back in the trees and hope God doesn't find them. Well, <laughs> that was dumb. But, you know, sometimes sin makes you act silly. So that didn't work. So they tried to hide from God. That didn't work. And oftentimes we do that, you know. And Maybe, maybe it doesn't look like hiding in some trees for us. Maybe it looks like... Uh, we, we, know, we know we haven't been pushing back against temptation. We know we've been given in. We're, we're feeling condemned about that or ashamed about that. And so maybe what our hiding looks like is withdrawing from the fellowship of God's people. And we've got all kinds of reasons, and we're busy, or it's that, or it's this other thing. But really in our heart, what's going on is we're hiding. We're hiding from God, and we're hiding from his people. Because we know if we get around his people, they're going to start... If they're really his people and they really love us, they're going to ask real questions. And then I'm going to either have to lie or tell the truth. And sometimes we'd rather just hide. Let's not do that. There's there's a better way. Sometimes what we do instead of that is we blame, which is a close cousin of justifying, but we see that happen here. Who does does God talk to first about it? What's going on here, right? Adam gets the first question. Adam says, Adam is, Adam, who? I'm going to tell you right now, Adam did not think before he spoke. Because not only did he say, the woman, he said, the woman you gave me. So God blam- or Adam blames God and the woman. Like, God, didn't you see this? What do you mean? What are you coming to me for? You gave her to me and she? Don't do that, man. Don't do that. I mean, the mercy of God is evident all through the Bible. But I'm telling you right now, if, mm, if I was God, Eden would have been napalmed. Like, right now. That's, and that's really what they deserved. I mean, God told them, you do this, you die. It, it should have it been Sodom and Gomorrah right there. And yet, here, here, here we see God doing what he's doing. But, so Adam blame shifts, tries to throw the blame on God. And maybe you've done that before, but please don't do that anymore. It is not God's fault that you do not take the way of escape. It is not God's fault if you don't have any of his word written upon your heart that has been sitting here available for you. It was a precious gift from him, and it is not God's fault if even you do know the word, you decided to disobey it. Uh, God loves you. He's given everything you need, all the tools you need uh, to obey him. There, the Bible is clear that all sin and fall short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3.23. We know that we are going to stumble, and we are going to fall short, uh, but ultimately, whenever that happened, we should not shake our fist at God. He, he, he has not caused that, nor is he um, not given us what we need. To stay out of the pain that comes with sin. So let's not blame God. Let's not blame other people. Man, that's so common. Yeah, I'm doing this or I did that, but it's, you know, this person did this. Listen, that's, that's weak. What well, do the kids say? That's weak sauce, man. Don't do that. You know, you, eat, you know better. You don't even need Genesis 3 to know. And yet we do that. That's the temptation. Why? Because we don't like the feeling of, of the, the responsibility of sin sitting squarely on us. And most of the time, it's because we just don't know the better alternative God's given us for how to deal with it. We feel like we got to squirm and wiggle and shimmy and you know, shuck and jive and try to figure out some way that that sin does not land on us. Well, maybe if it was someone else's fault, or if I can just hide from the fact that it's there, if I can justify it, right? I don't know about you, but I know the sinful, carnal part of my mind is a master justifier. I can come up with 10 reasons why that's okay. Half of them are verses, That's funnier than you think it is. It's really sad is what it is. We can think, we can think of a verse half the time to justify our sin. or it's, it's normally half of a verse if we're honest, right? But it's definitely out of context every time. But we, we are really good at justifying. Sometimes it's a combination of blame and justification, or sometimes all three are going on. But, dear friends, there's a better way. We don't have to do any of those because all of those just lead to more pain. That's just more sin. When we hide because of sin, when we justify because of sin, uh, when, when we lie about it or when we blame others, it just, it just heaps more pain, more wages of death onto that thing. Let's not do that. God has given us an escape from this toxic cycle of, of sinful reactions to sin. Okay. I would say one other thing I mentioned earlier, this isn't in my notes, I'm, I'm coming back to it though because it's important. We blame people, we hide, uh, we justify, and we minimize. We minimize sin. Sometimes we just it's not that big of a deal. It's always a big deal. Every single time we disobey God, it needs to matter to us. And for some of us, our senses have been dulled. The the, the scriptures talk about in another place that your conscience can become seared as with an iron. If there's enough times where you deny the conviction of the Holy Spirit, when when the Holy Spirit lovingly reaches you and says, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, and over and over again you just smack that away and act like it's a common thing and you you don't heed the warning of God, There can come a point where your conscience becomes seared. Like if I cut my arm and took a hot knife and just sealed that thing and cauterized it, the blood can't come through anymore. That's the image it's giving, that your conscience can become seared in that way that you don't even now perceive the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And those, friends, are some of the most terrifying verses in all the Bible. You do not want to get there under any circumstance. Uh, Conviction is a beautiful gift from God. It's Him reaching and seeking for us. And it's him giving us an opportunity to take this other way that I'm going to read you now. This is how the people of God escape from the toxic cycle of all those other reactions to sin. This is 1 John chapter 1 starting in verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Friends, did you see the better option? You don't have to blame, you don't have to hide, you don't have to justify and you don't have to minimize. You can come to this God Who is this good and this powerful, this gracious and this merciful? You can confess your sins to him. And he has said, Because I am righteous and because I am holy and I am merciful and I am good, I'm gonna forgive that sin and I'm gonna make you righteous and I'm gonna help you. I'm gonna trade you all of your failings and what I'm gonna give you in return is peace and hope and forgiveness. You can confess your sins. Notice what he said, if we walk in the light instead of the darkness is the contrast from the verse before. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Friends, don't blame, don't justify, don't hide, don't minimize. Let's walk in the light as he is in the light. It is by grace alone that we have that opportunity. It's a beautiful privilege. It puts us into A real fellowship and relationship with God's people and with God Himself. And we're able to help each other, lift each other up. We're able to confess sin to one another, hold each other accountable. It's this beautiful picture of what God intends. He's given us all the tools that we need to avoid these toxic, painful, death inducing cycles of sin. We just need to walk in them. We need to believe by faith that it's possible, it's because of Him. I'm asking you to look at God's response to this. Because some of us, we still have a picture of God that is skewed, to say the least. God after, so God creates a perfect world, gives, gives two people the perfect job description, frolic naked in this garden, pet the animals, and eat all the fruit. Just not that one. That's a pretty good deal, right? And yet, for, for whatever reason, for us, it wasn't good enough. And so they, they, they disobey. They, they listen to the serpent instead of God. We're, in what universe does that make sense? And yet, in so doing, in, in a way, 2 Corinthians says that Satan is the God little g of this world. You see, see God gave Adam a dominion, uh, a responsibility to care for the earth. He was God's ambassador and representative. And in, in obeying Satan instead of obeying God, that, that dominion Adam had temporarily, uh, that's part of why the world's so jacked up today, guys. And I know that it's, it's hard, and this is a deep answer I don't have time to get into, but the, the most common objection I encounter to the Christian faith is, if God's so good and so powerful, then why is the world so jacked up? we got to take them back to Genesis 3 and show them this. This is why. Uh, instantly, God begins fixing it for us, uh, but it, it, it takes some time, and there's a rollout of this plan, and it's coming to a beautiful culmination where uh, all sin and darkness and death is, is done away with forever, but uh, we gotta, we got to go through the process. So, And we're in the middle time, uh, but there's hope for us even now, as jacked up as things are, with Satan being the God little G of this world. But God's response to this treason of the ultimate kind is he comes into the garden and he's seeking for his children whom he loves. He doesn't send fire and brimstone immediately, which is what they deserve. Now, he is about to punish. That's going to be the second half of Genesis 3 because justice demands it and God is just. But just look at his reaction. He comes into the garden asking questions. Where are you? Did you you eat of the tree that I told you not to eat? Friends, this is God we're talking about. Can I, ask, can I just ask you a question right now? And, and you t- just, what, what do you think the answer to this is? Do you think God knew where they were? Do you think God wins hide and seek every time he plays? Yes. Do you think God already knew the answer to the question, did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat? Okay, so why is he asking these questions? He's not gaining information. Friends, he is lining Adam up to do exactly what one John tells us to do. He teed it up for him perfectly. He understands they're hiding because they're scared. They know they've disobeyed. And God, in his incredible tender mercy and love, having just been betrayed at the cosmic level, his mercy and grace is already evident as he doesn't come in wrath and fury, but he comes asking questions. Where are you, guys? Did you do this thing? And even with them being teed up with that kind of love and care, They still went the ignorant path. No, it was the woman you gave me. No, it was the serpent. He deceived me. That shows you how hard it is to walk in the light as he is in the light. That that should show you right there that you're not going to do that without the help of God. We need to add to the things we are asking for God's help on. Lord, help me to walk in the light as you are in the light. Help me to take the route of faith-filled confession and repentance and to see those things as a beautiful gift, to quit hiding, blaming, uh, justifying, and minimizing sin, but to take this beautiful opportunity you've given me to confess to you and to others, trusting that grace will cover me. That's what our first parents couldn't do. But by God's grace, we have an opportunity to, friends. And in so doing... We display the beauty of the gospel to the world. He knows those answers. He's just given them an opportunity to confess and repent. Unfortunately, they don't take it, but we can. We can. I want, I want to just show you something in verse 7 real quick, and it's something that's, that's hidden in here that I don't think a lot of people have maybe seen, and it's, it's powerful. Verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew, they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves Loin coverings. Uh, I, I never thought about this uh, until just recently. Why, why the detail of the fig leaves? You could have said they took some plants and made some loin coverings. Why, why, is, why is the Bible specific in telling us that they used fig leaves to make loin coverings? Very interesting. We don't have a whole lot of figs around here, so it's not something probably that we would catch. And maybe if we did, we wouldn't even think about it. But people that harvest figs will tell you. You want to wear gloves, you want to wear long sleeves because the, the, the leaves of the fig trees are not pleasant. They have uh, a very rough texture to them and in addition to that they excrete something like an enzyme. It wouldn't be to the degree of like sumac or poison ivy but it, 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 it excretes this, this substance that is irritating to a large percentage of the population to their skin. And uh, what I want you to see there is a couple things. One, uh, they made loin coverings. So that's rough. Uh, two, and I don't know if it's just because they didn't have time to make full suits, maybe, you know, whatever, but they cover their loins with these fig leaves. And, and, and what's, what's the point that I'm making? A couple things. One, every single time we try to fix the problems that sin create, we just make it worse. And they made it worse for themselves. They went and grabbed fig leaves, and they're making loin coverings, and then all of a sudden, not, not only do we have this cosmic betrayal we're dealing with, but, but now, you know, our loins are having issues because of the fig leaves, right? So the this, this situation got worse when they tried to fix it. And the other thing I would say to you is, is, you know, I don't know. I've seen leaves hang around for a little while, but they don't typically last very long. And so every sing- also in that, every time we try to solve the problem of sin, it's, it's only a temporary fix. We, we can stick band-aids on stuff. We can try to fix it up real quick, cover ourselves up. But it, ultimately, every effort we make to try to address the problem of sin is going to fail. It's only going to make things worse. Every single time. The end of the chapter, we'll we'll read this next week, but I have to mention it because I pointed out the fig leaves to you. At the end of the chapter, God makes them different garments. He makes them garments of animal skin. And this points to a time ahead when blood would be shed again to cover the sinfulness of man. And so we see automatically the incredible mercy of God Not only did they sin, not only did they refuse to repent, confess when they were lined up for it, not only did they try to solve the problem themselves, God is merciful in all this. He does dole out uh, what is commonly known as the curse, second half of Genesis 3, the, the punishment for sin, that needs to happen because God is a just God, can't just overlook it and say it's okay. And yet, you see his mercy, his tender mercy in the way he approaches them, in the way he takes the fig leaves away and gives them something better, and in the way automatically, already, He is foreshadowing, and he's pointing to the fact that I'm going to shed blood right now to cover you and to help you with the effects of this sin, and that's going to happen again one day. What that's pointing to is the beauty and the truth of the gospel. The gospel is this, that like our first parents, Adam and Eve, we have all sinned. None is perfect, not one. Every single one of us is in need of redemption and grace. None of us can save ourselves. We've all tried fig leaves in in our own way. We've all tried hiding and blaming and justifying. None of it's worked. We all need Jesus to help us, to save us, to cleanse us so that we can have his righteousness. Jesus came and lived the life we couldn't. He he did the battle with Satan that we have lost and did it perfectly. And then he went to the cross, submitting himself to death. The Bible says the death of a thief, a death he didn't deserve, a death you and I deserve. He submitted himself to that. Nobody killed Jesus. Jesus gave his life so that you and I by faith, could receive what he purchased, which is grace and mercy, redemption and righteousness for us as people. Jesus didn't just die on the cross. Three days later, just like he told everyone, he came back. He rose from the grave. This is the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is this. What what so many people believe... That there's a lot of good people and there's a lot of bad people and God likes good people and doesn't like bad people is absolutely not what the Bible teaches. The Bible is the only shot we got to know what God thinks about anything and the Bible teaches us every single person goes in the bad category because you've got perfect and it's not about can I do a little better than someone else? Can I blame other people and justify enough that I think maybe God would love me? That's not what it looks like. It's about perfect and imperfect. God is perfect. We are not. That's a problem. It's only a problem until you come to the point of being willing to surrender, submit to King Jesus, and to declare your need for him, to ask him to be your savior. And friends, that's the invitation today, is that you would surrender, fully submit to God, even if you're somebody that has put faith in Christ before. Run yourself, as we approach God through his table here in a few moments, and we take communion together, take a moment to ask yourself the question and and actually listen for the answer. Am I really submitted to God? Submitted to the King of glory? These are good things for us to think about. There's much help for us in these verses today. Thankful for the truth of the gospel. Thankful for the hope we see even in this most tragic set of verses in all of the Bible. May we be a people who resist temptation by the power of God. May we be a people who walk in the light when we fall short of the mark of perfection. And may we run to our Father instead of making things worse, trying to fix things on our own, for his glory and our good. Amen. Praise God for his word. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the power of your word. We thank you that even in the midst of these verses that are tragic, laying out the greatest atrocity in all of history when humankind betrayed you, Perfect God who gave us all things good. Lord, that even in the midst of that, there are lessons for us to learn. There are encouragements for us. Thank you, Lord, for teaching us and showing us how it is the enemy works, deceiving, tricking, lying. Lord, help us, please, to have a desire, a hunger, and a thirst, an insatiable thirst, to have more of your word written upon the tablet of our heart. Lord, if if most of us are honest, we, we dine and feast on other things. We, many times our appetites lead us to distractions and other things. But God, we're asking that you would change our appetite. God, may we desire to feast upon your word, that we may take it in and that it may become a part of us so that even if, even if Satan comes with small little changes to try to lead us down a road of deception, we'll notice it. Lord, please help us to obey the verses that call us to take every thought captive that is contrary to the word of God, to cast it down to defeat it by the truth of your word. God, help us to be proficient at wielding the sword of your spirit, which is the word of God. Help us to take seriously the commands of Ephesians 6, that we would take up your armor every day and wear it, knowing that each one of us is beset each day by varying temptations. And sometimes it's not the things that we often think about. Sometimes it's not overt Lord, sometimes we are just tempted to think just a little bit more highly of ourselves than we ought. Sometimes we are tempted to just be a little less patient than we should. Sometimes we're tempted to think just a little less of you than we should. And sometimes we're tempted to minimize how disgusting our sin really is. God, may we hate our sin, but not fall into condemnation. May we be disgusted with every single time we declare our independence from you by disobeying you. But let us not fall into hopelessness. Let us run to you walking in the light as we've been invited to. Thank you, Lord, that when we walk in the light, we will have fellowship with one another. And the blood of King Jesus, the righteous, will make us righteous. Thank you for the promises of your word. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy and grace that is, it is beyond the ability of language to describe. We are thankful. We cannot say thank you enough ways. So, Lord, help us to say thank you with our lives. Help us, Lord to live in such a way that it declares in every moment our gratitude for how good you have been, how faithful you are, and the fact that you have promised that you're with us to the end. We are a thankful people, Lord, even if we don't act like it sometimes. Please forgive us for those times, and please help us to be those who are grateful in every situation, that you may be glorified, and that our enemy may be defeated. We love you, Lord. We honor you.